so good to see you guys this morning. Um, it's not exactly a, uh, a warm morning, um, and I am definitely not someone who likes cold weather. Um, so I have on a t-shirt, another long sleeve shirt, and this nice sweater, and have a beanie and a nice warm jacket over there. I refuse to freeze. <laughs> so, but I am so grateful um, to be here, um, to be able to share God's word with you this morning. And uh, today is the second sermon in a two-part series we've entitled Thanksgiving and Stewardship. Last week, we focused in on the contrast between thanks, uh, thankfulness and unthankfulness. And today, we're going to be focusing in on the contrast between bad stewards and good stewards. So if you have your Bibles, uh, if you are able to, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to be coming from 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verses 17 through 19. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. Still hear some pages turning, so we shall wait. All right, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 through 19 records, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would grant us clarity of thought, Help us to understand your word, Lord, to apply your word, your truth to our lives, that you are glorified. Most importantly, God, we are thankful for your word. Lord, we wouldn't know how to live unless you had given us your word. We wouldn't know who you are unless you had revealed yourself through the pages of scripture. So on this day, we pray, God, that you would shine forth through the pages, that we would see you, Jesus, that we might worship you and honor you for who you are the God of this universe, our Lord, our Savior. And it's in your name and for your sake we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Once again, the title of this message is The Contrast Between Bad Stewards and Good Stewards. Uh, we find our points in these verses. Uh, the first one is every person is rich, found in the first part of verse 17. In the middle of verse 17, we find the lifestyle of bad stewards. And in the latter part of verse 17 through 19, we see the lifestyle of of good stewards. Our key point is this. Living in dependence on transitory wealth is arrogant, but living in dependence on God leads to true fulfillment. Living in dependence on transitory wealth is arrogant, but living in dependence on God leads to true fulfillment. A question is raised is, what is a steward? Merriam-Webster has a number of definitions of this word, but the one that seems to encompass them all is one who actively directs affairs, a manager. Now, the New Testament defines a steward in three different ways as a manager of a household or estate, a public treasurer, or one who is entrusted with management in connection with transcendent matters, an administrator. But the question is also raised, what is a stewardship? Once again, Merriam-Webster defines stewardship as the careful and responsible management of 
something entrusted to one's care. And in the New Testament, the various ways and places stewardship is seen has these definitions. The responsibility of management, the state of being arranged, an arrangement, an order, a plan, and a program of instruction, training in the way of salvation. You see, being a steward or having a stewardship implies an owner exists of whatever is being stewarded or managed. Thus, we can say that a stewardship is a trust granted and entrusted by an owner to another person or persons for profitable use to the owner primarily and subsequently to the steward. The telltale signs of a stewardship are evident within our text today. It's seen specifically in these words, God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. It is also fleshed out in a singular command with multiple applications that reveal two distinct lifestyles that are opposed to each other. And it is further fleshed out when we consider who Paul is talking to and who the apostle is talking about. In short, Paul has stewardship in mind throughout this entire letter. You see, it's easy to see from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, that Paul is talking to Timothy, a young man who began serving with Paul during his second missionary journey, and who is now the young pastor of the Ephesian church. This letter to Timothy is part of what is called the pastoral epistles or letters, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. And although he, as well as Titus, were the primary, primary recipients of these letters, Paul also intended for these letters to be read to the congregations where these men served. We see this by how Paul ends each of these letters. Grace be with you all. It's plural there. Knowing this, we surmise that Paul is thinking about and talking about corporate application of the truths he's sharing. He's talking about the church, how Christians live among one another and in this world generally. He even says as much there in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Once again, stewardship is on the apostle's mind throughout this entire letter. And, and Paul's concept of stewardship is all-encompassing. In other words, it's a lifestyle. And this lifestyle, it's grounded first in the gospel. And this makes sense given the apostle's church-wide scope in 1 Timothy. For he begins by telling Timothy in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. You see, Paul is warning Timothy that false teachers are teaching believers erroneous ways and how to live for God. And at the end of his warning in chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, Paul shows that it's the gospel that sits at the center of right living as he exposes everything that is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Then Paul tells Timothy in chapter 1, verse 18, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, 
that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. And then the apostle proceeds to lay out a litany of contexts in which the idea of stewardship is evident or implied. He says, prayer for all people, including governing authorities, in order to live peaceful, godly lives so the gospel can advance. He talks about the qualifications of elders, pastors, overseers, a synonymous term in the New Testament, and how to conduct the affairs of a local global church. Relationships within the church and within one's family is another topic. Life pursuits or endeavors that provide contentment, another topic. And then finally, the right perspective on material wealth. See, the apostle's thought pattern, it's unmistakable. We have been entrusted by God with multiple things. And those things are described in the context of lifestyle with the gospel as our foundation. So, as we come to our text today, as Paul is wrapping up this letter of his, The key point of this message is apropos. Living in dependence on transitory wealth is arrogant, but living in dependence on God leads to true fulfillment. Paul's wrap-up begins with our first point. Every person is rich. It's right there. As for the rich in this present age, this present age, this is the key phrase in seeing that every person is rich. For Paul is talking about our existence on planet Earth in our current station in life, whatever that might be. And at any given time, each person existing is in possession of something that is more valuable than someone else possesses. That's a true statement. You see, it could be knowledge, knowledge about spiritual things or how certain things work in a particular arena. It could be position. Position in life economically, socially, professionally, spiritually, emotionally, with or without authority. It could be a leader. It could be a follower. It could be a family situation, single, married, with, without children. It could be reputation, good, bad, caring, loving, mean, kind, content, discontent. It could be personality, driven, lazy, procrastinate, or on the ball. And it could be material wealth, house cars, big people toys, little people toys, money. Once again, at any given time, each person existing is in possession of something that is more valuable than someone else possesses. And if we stopped and thought about it, we would see again that this is true. For if it wasn't true, then there would be no arguments. Why? For each person would value one another's knowledge and opinions and be able to have robust discussions without trying to argue someone down. People will be able to disagree without being disagreeable. Also, there would be no jockeying for position in the corporate world and in everyday life. People would simply value another person's position, admire them without trying to subvert another's success. People would be satisfied relationally without trying to take what isn't theirs. People wouldn't be so obsessed with what others thought about them, and there wouldn't be any more robberies, burglaries, thefts, because people will be content with what they already are in possession of. For in each of these realities that I just mentioned, there's always someone out to take something of value from another person or place because he or she believes the owner possesses something better than what they possess themselves. Such people are unsatisfied with their current station in life, and therefore they take from others. 
And then they keep taking and taking and taking because enough just isn't enough. The pursuit of vain, ill-gotten riches or wealth has blinded takers from seeing that their own level of wealth should be satisfying, but it's not. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. You guys know how much um, I love movies. And as I was studying this passage and, and, and looking at these, these words, two movies came to my mind. Um, I don't know if I should recommend them or not, but I'm just going to tell you about them. One is entitled Heat, starring Al Pacino and Robert De Niro. Love this movie. Um, and I kind of hoped that the, the bad guy would have gotten away at the end, but he didn't. But sorry about that. Uh, but what's interesting in, in this movie is that the robbers... The thieves were led by Robert De Niro, and Robert De Niro and his, his, his uh, group there, they were living well. They had a lot of, quote-unquote, material wealth, but they kept taking and taking and taking very hard-charging folks. They, they didn't have enough in their mindset, so they had to take. And then this other movie is literally entitled Takers. And in there, one of the stars says, we're takers. That's what we are. And when you look at their characters, they also had a lot of material wealth, but they weren't satisfied. They kept going out to take what wasn't theirs. They're bad stewards. That's what they are. And in the beginning of verse 17, Paul is not singling out a particular class of people. He's talking to every person because every person is rich in some way. Every person is in possession of something valuable. Every person has some type of wealth. Doesn't matter your age. Every person has some type of wealth. Parents of children know this is true because your children don't always share well. Am I correct? Okay, I'm looking at the parents. I I can say yes because I am a parent. Yes, my kids are older. But guess what? It doesn't end. (laughs) Whatever the something is, guys. We are all stewards. From Paul's concept of stewardship, he asks every Christian, like he did the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, what do you have that you did not receive? Moreover, with our salvation being the greatest gift, God gave us, the, the apostle rhetorically asked in Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. The idea is that God owns all things and what we have, he has given to us. He has entrusted these things to us. We are rich in this present age because God has made us so. But we can't be short-sighted, which makes Paul's next point so timely. For in verse 17b, right there in the middle, he describes the lifestyle of bad stewards. As for the rich in this present age, Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. As he describes the lifestyle of of bad stewards, Paul is basically telling Timothy to do exactly what he did with the Corinthians. For when he asked them, what do you have that you did not receive in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, the apostle continues with this. If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? 
Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. You see, when we're rich and we focus on our wealth, whatever that may be, we are susceptible to becoming arrogant. This was the Corinthians problem. And Paul lovingly corrects them by contrasting bad stewardship with good stewardship. And when I said Paul is basically telling Timothy to do exactly what he did with the Corinthians, Folks, it wasn't just Paul who instructed the Corinthians. No, you see, Paul is telling Timothy to do exactly what he did with the Corinthians, but to now do it with the Ephesians. For Paul writes back there in 1 Corinthians 4.17, That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. See, Paul reminds Timothy that his warning is applicable in every church. And he tells Timothy to strongly forbid the believers in Ephesus to live in dependence on transitory wealth. He tells them, don't do that. You see, we've already seen how Paul brings stewardship to bear on all aspects of our lives throughout his letter to Timothy. But in these final instructions of the letter, He narrows in on and and uses the most transitory of earthly wealth to make his point, material wealth. The apostle says that such wealth is uncertain. It is here today and gone tomorrow. It's transitory. Proverbs 23 verses 4 and 5 says of material wealth, do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Certainly the words of the Apostle John are fitting in this discussion, for he writes in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pretentious, arrogant, boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. But why is living in dependence on transitory wealth arrogant? For Paul clearly connects being proud, haughty, conceited, arrogant with putting one's confidence in the uncertainty of riches. But again, why is it wrong? 
Is it what John says, simply evidence of not having the Father's love in us? It, it, it probably includes that. But is that what Paul is getting at? Well, according to Obadiah 1.3, pride dwells in our hearts and it's deceptive. When we are pridefully arrogant, we are assuming we are the master of our own destiny. We assume that we are sovereign and possess the right to order and to bend reality according to our own whims. It's no wonder that Paul says of men who want to be elders, pastors, overseers in 1 Timothy 3.6, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Milton Vincent wrote, pride is at the root of all my sin. Pride produced the first sin in the garden and pride always precedes every sinful stumbling in my life. For Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before stumbling. Therefore, if I am to experience deliverance from sin, I must be delivered from the pride that produces it. Thankfully, the gospel is engineered to accomplish this deliverance. For according to scripture, God deliberately designed the gospel in such a way so as to strip me of pride and leave me without any grounds for boasting in myself whatsoever. Vincent's spot on. He's right. For Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 through 29, but God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In our text today, Paul is saying that the lifestyle of bad stewards is to live arrogantly in dependence on transitory wealth. And in some mixed up way, bad stewards are convinced that this is the way to achieve true fulfillment. Such a lifestyle is the polar opposite of the lifestyle of good stewards. It's found right there in verse 17c through 19. Let's read the whole thing. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Here we go. But on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. The command there in verse 17, it's applicable to the descriptors of the lifestyle of good stewards also, you see, because Paul is telling Timothy to tell the believers in Ephesus that the following truths are to be the reality of their lives. For the command presents a contrast in the way Christians are to live. It's seen in that word, but. Don't live just for today in dependence on transitory wealth. Instead, live for God and demonstrate that trust by living in dependence on him. Here's how Paul puts it. Charge them to set their hopes on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Why does God richly provide us with everything to enjoy? Well, 
that's what he's known for, right? Right? Okay, just making sure. The way Paul phrases this truth is God is actively causing us to experience joy in the things of life. Have you ever thought about that? He is actively at work causing us to to have joy as we go through life. But the possibility exists that we can miss this reality if we're living in dependence on transitory things that we see and accumulate. We, we can miss seeing God working in our lives if we aren't consciously attributing the goodness and the challenges in our lives to him, recognizing his sovereignty and providence. This is the basic explanation of that familiar verse, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Let me be clear, though. This is not saying that our sinful thoughts, actions, and choices are God's fault. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15 show that's completely unbiblical. Again, God is not responsible for our own sinful thoughts and our actions and our choices. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15 show that is an unbiblical thought. But seeing God actively bring joy in our lives and every circumstance is the freedom and reality that he's called us to. You see, God has called us to himself and he is the true source of all that we have. And when we really grasp this truth, then we can really enjoy what he's provided for he and his glory then are the focus, the main focus of our hearts. Granted, There is an actual experience of enjoyment of things apart from God. If that wasn't true, then there wouldn't be any need of the warnings of this passage and those like them. But such enjoyment is transitory. It's temporary. It's passing away. It won't last. You see, when this world passes away, so does the enjoyment. However, if we have any eternal perspective on things, God and his glory, then our enjoyment on this side of eternity is simply the beginning of real enjoyment. See, now Paul tells Timothy, living like this, living with this eternal perspective, it's recognizable in continual specific ways. He lays them out in verse 18. Let's look at them together. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Being good simply means this. Do that which benefits others. Being good, this is what he means here. Just do that which benefits others. Here's the difference between a mere philanthropist and a Christian who's obeying this passage. Being rich in good works. You see, we are to be consumed with doing what God calls us to do in Christ to bring him glory rather than self-centered and self-defined pursuits. You see the difference? We're also to be generous. This should be our attitude, others-focused rather than self-absorbed. We should be ready to share. And all this is is saying we should be known for being ready to share, giving and sharing with others that which is our own. Do you see a pattern here? Do you see what this lifestyle activities are describing? Yeah? 
Okay, I heard two people over there. Do you see what it's describing? Well, if you don't remember, let me show you this. All of these activities are a mirror image of the lifestyle of Jesus Christ. Yes. Isn't this describing who Jesus is? Doing that which benefits others? Being consumed with doing what God calls us to do rather than being self-centered and and operating according to self-defined pursuits? Isn't that Jesus? He's here to do the will of his father, not his own, right? Isn't that his attitude? He's others focused. He's not self-absorbed, even though being God, he has every right to be. But he came here on planet Earth, became fully human to show us what we're supposed to be living like. He is known for giving and sharing with others that which is his own. The lifestyle of good stewards is to imitate Jesus Christ himself. Remember the gospel, it sits at the foundation of stewardship in the mind of Paul. And again, it's evident throughout this letter. And the center of the gospel is Jesus Christ. This centrality is also clear throughout this letter to Timothy. Chapter one, verse one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our savior and of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Chapter one, verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord. Chapter one, verses 15 and 16. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Chapter two, verses five and six. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Chapter three, verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, talking about Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Chapter four, verse six. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Chapter five, verse 21. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. And finally, chapter six, verses 13 through 16. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach with the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. The centrality of Jesus permeates the lifestyle of good stewards. This lifestyle is practicing for heaven because it imitates Jesus, who is truly life and in whom alone true contentment is found. 
It's right there in verse 19. Do you see it? As, as Paul says, those who live this lifestyle are storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And when we read this passage, I think an obvious question rises. Is storing up treasure in order to take hold of that which is truly life working for one's salvation? No. The Bible's clear that salvation is a gift of God. It cannot be earned by works or human merit. So then what does this, this verse mean? Well, the way Paul phrases this verse shows that our future is based on the sure foundation of something that occurred in the past. This is how Timothy first understood it. Therefore, our lifestyle of being a good steward is simply evidence of our having true life. We just haven't fully experienced this true life yet. It's an already not yet kind of a salvation. We are saved. We are saved for all of eternity. But how many in here live a perfect life? Don't raise your hand, Ralph. <laughs> guys, how many of you guys sin less today than you sinned a couple of years ago? You can raise your hands. You still sin, yeah. But think about it. Are you sinning less? Because you know you won't become sinless, right, on this side of eternity. But if you're growing closer to Christ, if I'm growing, growing closer to Christ, our lifestyle should be increasingly looking more and more like Jesus. That's why I love talking to senior saints, those who have walked with Jesus for a long time. They're so encouraging because they let us know that you haven't arrived yet, son, but keep on living. And as you keep living, you get closer and closer to Jesus and you won't continue to do those things that you used to do all the time. Didn't say it stops, but it becomes less. This truth also makes us ask, what's the past sure foundation? Think I've already told us, right? It's the cross of Jesus Christ. We know this. We know this is what Paul is talking about because the contextual making of a good confession of the gospel by our Lord Jesus Christ before Pilate and by Timothy in the presence of many witnesses is seen early on in this chapter. You see this contrast, this contrast between bad stewards and good stewards, it's based on a foundational and old contrast. Natalie read it earlier. You cannot serve and live for both God and money. Here's the basic premise. Bad stewards live with a temporal perspective, while good stewards live with an eternal perspective. Bad stewards live with an eye for right now, while good stewards live right now with an eye towards the future. Bad stewards desire the enjoyment of transitory wealth, while good stewards desire the enjoyment of Jesus in all things. So get ready to take my seat. I want to share a little illustration that one of my favorite professors in Bible college shared with us, and is talking about our enjoyment of Christ when we get to heaven. And he did it by way of a contrast by way of a shot glass. You guys know what a shot glass is, right? (laughs) Difference between a shot glass and a dump truck. When you get to heaven, are you going to be a shot glass Christian or are you going to be a dump truck Christian? Here's what he's talking about. When you get to heaven, shot glass is going to be full. When you get to heaven, the dump truck is going to be full. 
But you're not going to know it when you're in heaven, but you'll know it here on planet Earth. Because as we live this lifestyle of good stewards, what we're doing is we're storing up treasure when we get to heaven, right? And what you're doing is you're either working to fill up a shot glass or you're working to fill up a dump truck. And the fulfillment of that talks about the level of which we will enjoy Jesus when we get to heaven. Shot glass is full. You're going to enjoy Jesus Christ fully, and you're going to be absolutely satisfied. But so is the dump truck. But you won't know the difference there. You'll know it here. So let me ask you, do you want to be a shot glass Christian, or do you want to be a dump truck Christian? (laughs) I'm headed for that three one. You know, you got the dump truck right here, and they got the other ones on the back of it. Let's do that. Give our lives to Jesus. Not just for hellfire insurance. Live for him. He's worth it. The gospel is applicable in every aspect of our lives. And the more that we apply it in every aspect of our lives, the more we are living for Jesus, the more we're storing up treasure. But when we get to heaven, let's be dump truck Christians. The statement is true. Living in dependence on transitory wealth is arrogant. But living in dependence on God leads to true fulfillment. So what's God's desired work for us in response to this text? Three quick things. You ready? Those of you who are writing things down, I'll I'll go slow. Change our perspective on what constitutes wealth. Change our perspective on what constitutes wealth. It's not just material wealth. It's our relationships. It's how we serve in the church. It's how we serve on our jobs. And it's not age-restricted. Parents teach your young children that what they have, they should share. How many of you guys have seen that, that, um, that chocolate commercial when the two children are being asked, okay, if you do such and such thing, take a piece of chocolate? And then the last question, if you like to share, take a piece of chocolate. And one says, I'm not reaching down. But the other one picks it up and then gives it to her sister. Have you seen that commercial? That's what we're talking about. You don't have to become an adult to learn how to share right. Second point. Choose to be Christ-centered and others-focused. Choose to be Christ-centered and others-focused. You guys know that acronym, right? I know Joy knows the acronym. Jesus first. Oh, wow, okay. Other second. (laughs) Yourself last. Joy. Jesus first. Others second, yourself last. Choose to be Christ-centered and others focused. Finally, resist pride by daily preaching the gospel to ourselves. Resist pride by daily preaching the gospel to ourselves. God engineered it to strip us from pride. There's no way we get to heaven on our own. No way. Can't work for it. We're not good enough. Aren't you glad? (laughs) Because think about it. If we had a hand in our salvation, we could have a hand in losing it, right? Yeah, we could mess it up. But God did it all. He's perfect. He cannot mess it up. It's impossible for him to go back on his word. When we're faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you have saved us. 
God, we are grateful that you have entrusted to us all that we have. And God, you have entrusted also to us as individual Christians and as your church, your gospel. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be faithful with your gospel, God. Help us to be faithful in our relationships. Help us to be faithful, God, in our service to you, to others. Help us to live with you first, Jesus, others second, and ourselves last. We pray this to the end that you are glorified and your church is edified. In your name, Jesus, amen. God bless you.
Aren't you glad that Christ is the solid rock that we stand on? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. And the church said together, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.